0: They call it the mom test. If my mom doesn't understand it, I'm not doing a good enough job.
1: That's the voice of Sean Singh, CEO of Vistagen Therapeutics, headquartered in South San Francisco. Listen in now to hear Sean's thoughts about leadership and how Vistagen is working to develop a new generation of medications for anxiety, depression, and other central nervous system disorders. I'm John Cimbley. You're listening to Bioboss. Today I'm speaking with Sean Singh, CEO of Vistagen Therapeutics. Welcome to Bioboss, Sean. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. How did you find yourself at Vistagen? Uh,
0: well, Vistagen's part of a, about a 30-year career in this space. Uh, started back in the early days in the 90s when I had to decide as a corporate securities lawyer which direction I wanted to lean. And at the time, I was writing prospectuses here in Silicon Valley for high tech and biotech companies. and that was before we had a family and 32 years later, I'm happy to say four kids later uh, in marriage, it's been a good move to be able to say, you know, make money in helping people and literally helping them physically and mentally. And so started off um, in, uh, in the corporate finance universe, moved in-house to a company that was focused on hepatitis, uh, then moved to venture capital, and then one of the companies in our venture capital portfolio that I was running was Vistagen. And so through an investment, I got on the board, got close to the team, the science, and you know one thing led to another. And we got to a point where it made sense for my skills to be applied to the next uh, two or three um, phases of the evolution of the company. And it was a good fit. So that was about 10 years ago and um, I really haven't looked back since. So still driving force, which is to be able to not only deliver Phenomenal results to stockholders at the end of what's typically a very long process, especially with drugs that you're trying to develop to get into the brain and do amazing things, Um, but substantial benefits to people
1: and we all know there's a big need out there. How did you decide you wanted to lead this, this biopharma company as opposed to after you'd studied it and thought about it from your vantage point and venture capital, did, did, how'd you make that choice? Like, I'm gonna be the guy versus I'm gonna find the guy or the woman?
0: Uh, well, I knew the people, and it's always it's gotta be at least about the people. And uh, Visagen was also involved and still is with the, one of our subsidiaries um, with stem cell technology. And that was the initial, attraction. Um, but mostly it was the people, really, the people in the company and the people who are around the company as part of the ecosystem. Um, I had a high degree of confidence about the people and the technology had promise. Um, at that time, we had a stem cell platform plus um, our, one of our oral assets for Uh, CNS indication so we've since added on to that.
1: Did you feel like you were in the process of sifting and looking and looking and looking and finding this or was it more like this is it?
0: Uh, Well I always had the option to pivot in any direction from any of the portfolio companies that I thought had the potential that was kind of a deal with partners going into it and had a lot of opportunity really over a course of eight years of running the fund to go in one direction or another and I really just saw um, the combination of people and technology um, as the most promising at the time that decision was made. And and the need was also there. It was a time for really someone with capital markets expertise and corporate finance expertise and partnering expertise um, to come into the fold to add, really add uh, an extra dimension of strength on what was already a pretty strong scenario.
1: When people say that you don't know, what do you do for a living? How do you like to answer that?
0: I bring hope to a lot of people. Um, I'm, a, I'm a very positive person that tries to lead through that example. Um, and I'm absolutely a, a glasses-half-full person. And, you know, you have to have that factor. It drives so many things. It's not false hope. It just has to be re- really leadership-driven hope. And, and I think that's what we do. Um, we do every day. We're committed to trying to bring some a better situation to people's lives than they're dealing with. And when you think about the possibilities, even if one of these three assets um, ends up becoming a new medication, and given the numbers involved, we're talking tens and hundreds of millions of people literally with depression, with anxiety, and even more so now in the midst of the COVID pandemic, and social unrest, I mean, these are skyrocketing numbers. Imagine if even a fraction of those, let's say five million people all of a sudden become more productive, let alone one, you know, 1 million even, and they're innovative and the, the spread effect for that hope and that energy and that innovation, it really is, it's amazing what can be done. And you think about how there's clear cut examples of how current medications, combined with current circumstances, are just falling short. They have too many side effects. They take too long to work. The efficacy is too limited. The safety issues are overwhelming. Let's watch a commercial on TV. You know, the the first 10 seconds are great, and the next uh, 45 to 50 seconds are scary. So we definitely know there's never any one-size-fits-all solution to, to these problems, any problem, alone, let alone a neuropsychiatric problem, but people need options. And I mean, the bright side of this is it's really great to be able to lead hope when you have something to back it up, right? And that's, that's really an attractive piece. I think that's my job. You know, I have to have vision. I have to have hope. Uh, I have to secure sufficient capital. I have to put together the right kinds of relationships, the right kind of ecosystem. Um, And I have to surround myself with people that are typically way smarter than I am. And I know I'm in the wrong room if I'm ever the smartest person in the room. So that's the benefit of this job is you get to really surround yourself with some fascinating people. And I learned that early on when I had to learn how to write a prospectus for something I had no clue about. I got very good at asking questions and making sure I was getting expert input. You have to have patience uh, and endurance for sure. Um, you know, it's just the way that, that it, it's part of the deal because <laughs> there's very rarely a straight line from idea to objective and especially in this industry and especially with, uh, you know, with capital markets, the way move, they move in and out and Regulatory environments move in and out, and things are in vogue one day, they're not in vogue another. You know, you have to stay. These are not widgets. You know, it takes a long time in drug development to get to a successful outcome. And the benefit then is that you get to realize that benefit over a nice period of time once that investment's been realized. So it's, you got to stick with it. You have to have good no go go no go um, stopping points along the way too so that you're not throwing good money at bad
1: you have told me that you originally studied to be a lawyer you were a lawyer when you made that shift to go from law to being in a challenging field like running a biopharma company what was that transition like for you
0: it really was exciting more than anything you know it i had been um two solid years working and billing hours that probably totaled, you know, five years of, of work experience at that time. We were billing 3,400 hours a year. doing IPOs left and right in the early nineties and sitting in the heart of Silicon Valley. It just wasn't a lot of sleep, but it gave me a tremendous amount of experience and the ability to sort of survey the field. And it became pretty clear to me. you know, And I, <laughs> I remember talking to the CEO, um, of the biopharma company that ended up hiring me out of law. And I just said, look, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid-20s. I just billed you a million dollars. I can absolutely guarantee you I can economize on that if you bring me in-house. And, you know, I need a raise and I need a car allowance and all those things. But, I, but mostly what the driver was is, you know, we knew, as I told you, we've been married 32 years, and we knew we wanted a family. And there was no shot at having any sense of of normal, having and building and and having the kind of family that we wanted if I kept on a track to become a partner in the Silicon Valley law firm. It just, I could see way ahead. I've had a pretty good ability to see many steps ahead of wherever I am uh, at any point in time, and that was pretty clear. So we made the shift, and I made the case to the CEO of the company I had just taken in public, so I had a familiar, uh, pretty good familiarity with the, the team and the technology. We had done two rounds of financing plus their IPO all within the span of um, seven months. So it was very easy for me to make that move. And then once I got into the, the industry, it's just fascinating. Uh, I also had uh, kind of a midlife medical crisis at 36. and. I got um we had a few kids at that time all young all under 5 three and one on the way and I I got um flesh eating bacteria the necrotizing fasciitis and it was a, just a crazy confluence of uh, a spider bite and strep a and you know probably one of my kids sneezing on me who knows but the point was uh I had a medical experience through as intense and as close as you can get I mean basically a Navy SEAL doctor came and said, look, we either operate in 30 minutes or you're done. And so I said, suit up. And 15 days of ICU and you know, nine surgeries later, I came out of that with such an incredible real life experience of what the medical universe can do. That was it. I was hooked. I was already hooked for what we were doing, hepatitis, but this one made it crystal clear the miracles and and amazing things that can be done with medicine and with technology in the medical arena and so that that drove me into the the venture capital side it was a little bit off the normal running around track and part of the reason I think I got the flu in the first place if you get the flu and then you get a spider bite and then you get um (laughs) <laughs> you you have other bacteria floating around, you know, that's the bad confluence of events. It was because I was running around the street trying to scrape together money to support the company that ended up flourishing. Um, so, you know, those real world experiences kind of settle in and 20 years now, um, ago, I'd still as fresh as it was yesterday. I definitely, uh, I'm no great shakes in a bathing suit, but, um, the scars are actually, uh, they're, they're interesting through the years as I've, as I've coached softball for my kids in little league. And it's a real good miracle conversation starter when, you know, I'm out there coaching in my shorts and they see all kinds of surgeries and scars. And it's, uh, it's a great conversation starter. So, you know, therein also is the reason uh, I'm a hopeful glasses half full guy. <laughs> it also makes you understand and appreciate. The debilitating effects of some of these indications that we're wrestling with, with anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts—I mean, these pain—they um, really affect people's lives and, and what they're able to do: take their kids to soccer practice, go to their job interviews, you know, do whatever it is, it's normal. And you know, being able to remove that kind of worry from their shoulders is—it's
1: powerful. Can you remember when you were a kid, like? You name it, eight, nine, ten, something like that, and you had this self-image, probably related to what your parents were in their professional lives. I'm going to be whatever. Can you remember what it was you thought you might be? What your self-image was, and how that connects or not in any way with what you're doing now?
0: I mean, I still have my my black-bordered tops 1971 baseball card, so um, <laughs> I can absolutely guarantee you it was baseball. And baseball, oh, oh, look, just look. I mean, you got you got Babe Ruth back here. You got DiMaggio up here. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, my house is filled with, with baseball and Jackie Robinson over here. So uh, that was me. And I played all the way, at least played through my freshman year in college and then realized, well, it was actually my brother that said, look, you're not going to be, you're not going to make it, dude. You better go get a good degree <laughs> and, and you could be a career minor leaguer. But that's it. The other thing was Tony Gwynn's brother came in and was going to be the center fielder the next year. So I knew I had no shot. So I gave it up. I gave it up and I transferred to Berkeley and got a degree in Berkeley and this, you know, never turned back, but yeah, I was baseball player. And then as I got a little older, um, you know, I certainly thought I was going to be a Supreme court justice. So that tracked me all the way through college. And I was a local science major, as you know, I went to law school. So the, the biotech world didn't even exist. there there really wasn't a biotech company then there was big pharma as we knew it from the fifties, you know, Bayer and the rest, but there was zero appeal on that side of the world. And, and it was only, I I wanted to be on the California angels and I wanted to be a Supreme court justice after that. So I don't know how they connect. I mean, I know the team orientation has absolutely followed me through my whole life and, you know, teaching life through baseball to my kids and, and life, through sports has been a hallmark from day one through, you know, yesterday. So um, that part's mattered. And I've always been, I've always wanted to figure things out. Um, You know, from uh, the puzzle perspective of being a lawyer is just, I always like to do corporate deals because I like to see how everything fits and make it fit. Um, That's still needed day to day when you're putting together the complex, teams and full ecosystem you need to develop a drug
1: what do you say when people ask who is Vistagen
0: it's a company that's got a passionate focus on mental health and really changing the life stories of of not just patients but also their caregivers and the day-to-day experiences that these debilitating and it's not all aspects but it's anxiety and depression in particular trying to flip the script for a lot of people.
1: Sean, what's new at VistaGen?
0: Well, the most exciting new development, really a couple. One is uh, a corporate partnering arrangement that we've got with a really uh, well established group um, in the, the, the Asian markets, key Asian markets, for PH94B, our lead drug for anxiety disorders. But more important, really, than that, even closer at home, is we've reached a very exciting consensus with the FDA on the study design for our phase three study. Getting consensus with FDA on the design for our phase three study uh, that is very straightforward um, should be a very streamlined approach to be able to replicate almost identically what we did in in phase two and had highly statistically significant results. Uh, and so, being able to now take that study design and put it into a phase three setting. Uh, we're just doing that with, with a lot of confidence and comfort about how to execute and, and what it'll take um, from the FDA's perspective to ultimately get approval if we're successful
1: in phase three. How would you describe how your lead candidate works?
0: So PH-94B, we call it PH-94B, it's a farine. It's a neuroactive steroid. It's really unique in terms of any drug that you probably know. I mean, a lot of your typical concepts of pharmacology just don't apply here. Um, example, there's no half-life of the drug. It's, uh, we have formulated as a nasal spray, but really only because the, the receptors that are engaged that then uh, create a series of, of neural transmissions that ultimately are mediated by the limbic amygdala uh, are only in the nasal passage. So when we, at very low doses, these are microgram doses, uh, not even milligram doses, but microgram doses. When the drug is, um, is sprayed, uh, 3.2 micrograms is the dose. So one quick spray in each nasal passage. Um, the receptors that are activated send uh, neuronal activity to what are called olfactory bulb neurons that are at the base of the brain those neurons then transmit to the limbic amygdala, which is the main fear and anxiety center of the brain. And at that point, the, there's a um, or a series of calming neurotransmissions, if you will, just to put it simply, sent to other parts of the brain typically associated with that fight or flight, the fear and anxiety um, complex. So it's all about really getting right to the neurons that are essential to, create that kind of equilibrium you're looking for where you have um, not so much inhibitory that you're falling asleep and sedated and and your cognition is impaired, but not so much excitatory that you're also um, going too far in the wrong direction. So you have to almost achieve a a nice balance. Think about maybe a seesaw that's balanced out. Um, But the key point is getting there quickly. And because it's a direct path from the nasal passage to the the amygdala, the brain, the drug's not delivered through the blood, right? So there's no systemic exposure, as you see with many drugs, especially oral drugs. Uh, And that removes a tremendous amount of complication. And it also allows, in our case, to have, for example, in anxiety, often used are benzodiazepines drugs like Xanax and Valium and Ativan. Well, they work quickly, Um, but they're systemically delivered, and they also have a duration of effect that's many hours. And so there's a sedation component, there's a cognitive impairment component, there's other issues aside from arresting the anxiety that you have to deal with. Well, our focus with all drugs that we've got in our pipeline, especially PH94B, is A, we want them to work quickly, B, they can't generate a set of side effects that are more troubling and safety concerns that are more troubling than the underlying condition, right? Uh, and they also have to have multiple verticals. They have to have multiple potential applications, not just one single uh, one single indication. All three of our drugs fit that, and PH-94B in particular does fit it. So, for example, um, why is non-systemic a, a key factor? Well, uh, take postpartum anxiety, for example, there's 17 to 20% of new moms within the first three months experience postpartum anxiety. And if you have to take a drug that's systemically delivered and you pass some of that to your baby, that's not a great option. If you have a drug that's not getting into the bloodstream, well, now you've got an opportunity to really address the anxiety that's often profound, but not do something that's associated with, um, you know, with, with care and feeding of your baby, right? And there is a lot of anxiety, or failure to um, effectively breastfeed, failure to sleep, failure to, to shake the worry that something's going to happen to your child. There's all kinds of issues. We all, any parent knows that so it's important to have the kinds of, of features and benefits that we see the current drugs falling short on so it's not great if you have to give a speech or get a job interview or meet your in-laws or go to your neighbor's barbecue if you've got a benzo that's putting you to sleep or making you fuzzy same thing if you're in a work setting if you're the broker and you need to make a trade you know it's it's not great to have these these side effects that limit your um your functionality so we see that with page 94b the uniqueness of that mechanism that allows it to go on a direct path from the nasal passage to the brain and not go off target anywhere not not hit opioid receptors for example or not hit receptors associated with addiction Um, these are some of the major hallmarks of ninety four b in particular as as is the case for our other drugs, so we don 't want to cause addiction we don 't want to cause sedation we don 't want to cause cognitive impairment. What we want to do is very quickly let someone have a drug candidate that 's safe that they can pull out of their briefcase, their backpack, uh, you know their purse up front of a particular event that they know is a stressor, much like Uh, an asthma patient would pull a rescue inhaler out up front of an asthma, uh, anticipated asthma assault, or a migraine episode where you take a migraine drug in front of that. It's that acute, on-demand nature and the need for that kind of treatment flexibly that patients need. And they need that, uh, and they want a a quick responder. You have to give a speech to your colleagues at Google. Well, you want to be able to... To mitigate the anxiety right up front of that, and PH94B so far in phase two studies, moving us into phase three, works in about 10 to 15 minutes, and that's a terrific um, period of time for most people to to be able to deal with, with whatever anxiety-provoking events on the horizon. The the rise in team orientation in the workplace, um, the rise in social media. And the pressures from social media, particularly among adolescents, uh, academic pressures, you know, there there were all kinds of signals that said people have, and the number one issue in business usually is public speaking oriented. You know, whatever it is, talking to your boss, talking to interviews like this, doing your teamwork, they all indicated that there just needed to be something besides beta blockers and besides benzodiazepines. And, and antidepressants are the only drugs that are approved. There's only three of them for social anxiety. Um, and, and the awareness of that it is an indication, you don't just make up anxiety-related indications. It's not, that's not good either. There's really excellent data, especially from the National Institute of Mental Health and the NIH in general uh, on their website. There's a terrific brochure about what it is. And remember, it's it's a fear... anxiety of essentially humiliation and judgment and embarrassment in everyday situations Um, and they could be social they could be performance oriented Um, you know it's a a diverse set of issues that people have to wrestle down and they know often what it is and even though they know it they still have the same um, anxiety provoking um, triggers and experiences. So intercepting that is the key. Right right up front of it is the key. If you've got to go give a speech in 15 minutes, 20 minutes, well, let's have a way for you to safely manage that anxiety down. Usually when people are into the event or experience that they're worried about, they do pretty well. It's just getting over that initial hump and starting the speech or starting the panel discussion or starting the interview and, uh, and the, luckily, a drug like this so far, what we've seen is you, know, you can take it uh, up to four times a day through phase two is what we've seen. Um, so that's helpful. And to, to also have the kind of confidence, by the time the drug's um, through phase three, we, we would also expect to have what's called a liking study done where it's, it's the kind of evidence you need to show that a drug isn't potentially addictive. Right. And that's one of the biggest things here, especially with benzodiazepines, the more you use them, the more you need them, the greater your tolerance is, and the more you have to have. And so it just becomes this really scary rinse and repeat cycle that you somehow have to break, and the withdrawal is also uh, it's torture uh, when you come off of benzodiazepine. So ideally, we can displace that class in as many anxiety related indications as possible over time but the first target is the acute treatment of anxiety in adults with social anxiety disorder to be followed then by ideally pediatrics mostly adolescents because the mean duration of this illness is about 20 years and the typical onset is is in
1: adolescence when you're presenting the story and someone misunderstands it what do they tend to misunderstand, and how do you help them get back on track?
0: When you have something new, and people have old friend notions of what it, what's out there, and those, especially in depression and anxiety, where there really has not been anything new for decades, and there's been you know similar flavors of the same thing, um, and we've seen that with depression and anxiety, that it's SSRIs and SNRIs, and in anxiety, it's benzodiazepines. And um, the the temptation for the listener is to just simply say this, okay, this falls right into that category, and it's just another benzo, or it's just another antidepressant and SSRI. And you really do need to spend some time, and and I call it the mom test, but if my mom doesn't understand it, I'm not doing a good enough job. And... I think the key thing is these are fundamentally different drugs than anything that's ever been out there. And sometimes that causes people to pause and they're scared and they, you know, how how is the FDA going to regulate this? And there's been many times in our history, there was a time when SSRIs were new and there was a time when they displaced the class before them. And there was a time when, uh, when, when benzos were new and they displaced what was before them. This is the time for the current depression drugs and the current anxiety drugs to be displaced. With drugs that work rapidly, people need to know whether something's going to work or not soon. They don't need to take six to 10 weeks to figure that out and then have to in depression, for example, stop, take nothing, still depressed, dealt with the side effects the whole six to 10 weeks and then start something else. Again, that's, a, that's another rinse and repeat scenario that just doesn't work. And if it's not gonna work, Let's, let's let the patient know that quickly. Um, and if it is going to work, let's deliver the therapeutic benefit as soon as possible and as safely as possible. So I think getting people to understand the, there isn't one way, again, no one size fits all to deal with mental health disorders. And there's never a single solution that covers everybody. Same thing, one size fits all, right? So you need talk therapy. You need the, the other professions in mental health um, and, and I think that's getting them to understand that these drugs are fundamentally different in positive ways that we think fit the shortfalls of the current generations is, is key. Uh, the other part of it is it's complicated. It is, a, it is not a process that you can just snap your fingers and get done. It's complicated to develop drugs for anything under the current system it takes a long time and you don't just generate a press release every day. And it, it you, you try to get big wins and in, in the milestones along the way, but especially when you're dealing with drugs that you expect to go into the brain and do amazing things and change lives, you just have to be careful and you have to do it, walk the process. And, and we're doing that. And I think that's uh you know, that's the main thing. Um, these are big, big differences from the past. We're intentionally focusing on them because they are so different and we think are better than what's preceding. And that's what we intend to
1: show. There must be times when you say, oh my God, this is an endless journey. And there must be times when you say, it doesn't matter if this thing works, I'm really going to do some good. How do you work through that?
0: Obviously the grind, that's where I said patient endurance is absolutely critical. And you have to have that a team that's willing to persevere and not be measured by where your stock price at any moment in time. Where we find a lot of comfort, and and really it is the only place you ought to, as a leader of a biotech company, find the comfort is, is in the science and medicine. And what do the clinicians say? What do the scientists say? What do the regulators say? What do partners that are big pharma partners that have spent decades in careers looking at unique specific aspects of your programs? Um, what do the people that are expertized in the space say? And what is what is their what are their critiques? What are their suggestions? And when you get a constant chorus back from those kinds of expertized folks that is in sync with your vision, it's really heartwarming. You, you just get to the point like, yeah, we are onto something. No matter how we're measured in the moment, it's just like a poll. It's just, you know, the stock price, unfortunately, does not usually reflect where the the universe that's been confidentially expertized understands things. I cannot remember a situation where I've been in, in any public context, investor conference, partnering arrangement, you know, broker meetings, whatever it is, where the audience, a good percentage, 25-30% at least, I get a lot of head nodding. And that means that the experiences, whether it's anxiety, depression, suicide, these indications uniquely. And this isn't gout, right? This is this is a. If it's pain, if it's addiction, if it's suicidality, if it's anxiety, if it's it, there's so many people affected in every audience that I'm in. I'm uniquely benefited by that compared to the rest of the team because. I experience that all day, every day, and I understand the transformative potential that we have here. And it's not just one shot, it's multiple shots. It's it's through anxiety and all its verticals, depression, all its verticals, right? Suicidality, we're talking about veterans in, in one of our studies in trying to bring the veterans to a point where they can have the ability on an outpatient basis to maintain whatever benefits they've achieved in their talk therapy, right? Whether it's PTSD or depression or suicidal thoughts and and behaviors, um, there's so many people that can benefit. And I come across them all the time. Moms and dads talking to me about their teenagers who are uh, just, they're being bullied because of social media and that's caused anxiety and depression and College students uh, now professionals, workers, parents teaching their kids at home it's it's a gigantic problem, and any dent we put into that is going to change a lot. Uh, a big dent is what we think we can put into it based on the drugs that we're we're bringing to the table so and drugs aren't it only you have to in all these mental health indications, complement it with quality talk therapy. Um the thing that I think has changed a lot and COVID has brought this to the forefront and I'm and I'm always looking for silver linings from this this COVID tragedy one of the things is we used to look at things like breast cancer sort of how mental health was before or prostate cancer before COVID which was we didn't talk about it and we, someone had it, and they were sort of secret about it. They didn't want the stigma. And and now today, if you present with prostate cancer, breast cancer, it's like, okay, we got it. Let's deal with it. Here's the program. Let's go do it. And mental health was the same thing. In many ways, it still is. People didn't want to say, I have to go to the the my therapist's office. They didn't want to have people know they're on antidepressants or uh, or anti-anxiety drugs. And I think we're shifting to the point that is like, look, we know this is a problem. It's a logical problem when there's so many trauma and anxiety and stress provoking scenarios out in the world. And we know that there's potential solutions out there. So but we also know that there's a need for new solutions. Let's just address it. Let's bring it all above board. And there's some really good groups. Our website has a finding help section you could go to at Vistagen.com um, that leads you to those groups. The Anxiety and Depression Association of America, for example, they they have a tremendous outreach and educational program. And that's the first step, figuring out, yeah, this is something we need to address. And then what's the best fit? What's the best way to address that? And I'm so happy to see that happening right now. We know there's a mental health pandemic because it's finally being reported on. And the same thing with the benzo epidemic, that's on par with the opioid epidemic. Fortunately now it's getting media attention and people are a lot more circumspect about taking uh, benzodiazepines for more than a short period of time. Um so we can get through all these problems just like with COVID we will get through it and it just takes it takes time to walk the process. So we're doing our part.
1: In the age of coronavirus have you learned anything new about the scope of the problem and how you can address it?
0: This is a, it's an unprecedented time as we know and I think in a time when we are finding that our communities uh, are struggling, it's it's critical that we normalize finding help. And we've done part of it is is through our efforts through our website visagen.com. We have a whole finding help section on depression, anxiety, suicidality. Um, I mean, we hear about it unfortunately after the fact when a celebrity commits suicide, or you know, you hear someone overdose um, we have to absolutely normalize that uh, finding help is 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 okay and that there's we can't let the stigma interfere with the potential to find treatments and we're in a mode fortunately as a company where i think we can help open that conversation we have already we've encouraged a lot of people to do the same um, I encourage you and your listeners also to really do more on that. There's all kinds of places where hope can be found with help. And at the same time, you know, we sit back in, in our dream as a company, and my dream certainly as a, a leader of the company is, is really to, to develop that new generation of medicine that for anxiety and depression and some neurological disorders that, that really debilitate people's day-to-day existence, let's flip that. Let's let's find a way to get these people more productive um, and more mainstreamed and, and really enjoy their lives, especially with anxiety and the opportunity cost related to social anxiety disorder and other disorders where people aren't going to interviews. They're not going to take... Job opportunities. They're not seeking social relationships. You know, that opportunity cost is profound. On top of um, of these issues, so I think the COVID epidemic has certainly highlighted the the consequences of the diverse impact of the p- pandemic: economic loss, unemployment, health and safety concerns, social isolation. These are all um, bring to the forefront that. Yeah, you know, on the other side is something like this, but it doesn't necessarily have to be getting COVID or fearing COVID. It could be, uh, you know, it could be abuse. It could be um, social bullying. It could be all kinds of trauma-inducing scenarios that affect people day to day where help's needed. Talk help is needed and complemented with medication. You know, people can really put their lives back into the spot where they'd love to live them.
1: Thanks for making time to speak with me today, Sean. It's
0: been absolutely my pleasure.
1: Near the start of our conversation, Sean told me I'm a glass-half-full person. And he's clear, as a CEO, this doesn't mean he's reliant on false hope. It means he's determined to lead, armed by science, toward realizing his vision for the company. One way Sean works to stay grounded is by surrounding himself with experts who can provide a range of perspectives. As Sean likes to say, I know I'm in the wrong room if I'm ever the smartest person in the room. For Sean, understanding the data is just part of the equation. To communicate insights, he relies on what he calls his mom test. If his mom doesn't understand what he's saying, he's not doing a good enough job. I heard Sean's mom test in action when I asked, what do you do for a living? His reply? I bring hope to a lot of people. I'm a positive person who tries to lead through example. I'm John Simbole. You're listening to Bioboss.